Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry we're starting uh, five minutes uh, a little bit late, um, but it's a, a wonderful summer's evening, which I hope you're all enjoying. Um, my name is Gareth Hoare. I'm the British Consul General here in Melbourne. So I represent the British government's uh, interests across uh, well, the official government relationship, across uh, our economic ties, um, and working with other colleagues, including the British Council, um, on our cultural uh, ties, which are increasingly important uh, that we maintain and build on. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the new British Inventors event this evening. Uh, we have uh, two wonderful speakers um, and uh, a very professional uh, compare in Fleur Watson, and she's going to be guiding the discussion uh, this evening. Before we get going, I really just want to uh, make a couple of remarks. And the first really is to thank the uh, generosity and foresight of the Naomi Milgram Foundation um, and Naomi herself, who may be coming along but isn't here yet, um, but represented by Robert Buckingham, the creative director of M Pavilion. Stick your hand up, Robert. There we go. Um, and uh, thank uh, them for their generosity in allowing the British government to be part of this wonderful um, series of events over the summer. Um, as you probably know already, M Pavilion, this year's pavilion, is designed by a UK architect, uh, Amanda Levette, um, and uh, she's done a great job, I have to say. It wasn't an easy brief to fill, following on from the previous uh, design from last year, but she's brought some of the her ideas around nature, I think, um, in, into the pavilion. But interestingly, her approach to the design has taken a lot of risks with using new and advanced materials. Um, so uh, the, from the carbon fibre to the, to the steel poles, um, she's done a fantastic uh, job in combining nature with an advanced modern society and what we can do. So today's event comes under the umbrella of the Culture is Great Britain campaign which is designed to inform and attract uh, new audiences to the richness of British culture, which is steeped in both tradition and modernity. Uh, so for example, in less than two weeks time, uh, we have the Royal Edinburgh Military Two taking place um, at the Etihad Stadium down the road. And that's uh, drawn in a, an audience of around 150,000 people already for the performances there. So we know that there's demand for British culture um, outside of, of, of design and engineering. Um, and then in April, the BBC Proms uh, will be coming uh, for the first time to Australia, and they'll be playing uh, just across the road at the Arts Centre. So, um, just building on the theme of uh, the new British inventors uh, for this evening, um, and, and just mention again uh, Amanda Levette's uh, role in that, um, her, well, she was the winner of the uh, the Sterling Prize in 1999, which is uh, the UK's most prestigious architectural prize, and that was for her work on the media centre at the Lord's Cricket Ground, which is a very futuristic design and has stood the test of of time, I believe. I think the important thing about that, in particular, that was she was taking a, at the time a big risk uh, in terms of her design and her proposal for that stadium and. Which, is, which has really transformed what was a very traditional space and injected a degree of modernity uh, into it. She's now been commissioned uh, to, um, to expand the Victoria and Albert Museum through a, a new annex that they're creating. 
Um, so it remains to be seen uh, how that will turn out. And uh, I'm sure she will have a, an extremely uh, creative plan for that. As I mentioned, M Pavilion draws upon advanced manufacturing processes and materials. And um, I know Shay is going to talk about his approach to that later on. Um, the UK, as you know, has a, a very long history of design and invention um, in, in everyday life as well as large projects. So the humble automatic electric kettle, which we'll rely on for our cup of tea, is a British invention, as is an ATM machine, the cash we use every day in our lives, as are, well, the design, at least, of the iPhone, um, which has transformed the way we all communicate together. So they're really good examples of uh, design in action and risk-taking by inventors. Our first, well, both of our panellists actually are a witness to the vibrancy and diversity of the UK design scene now, which has attracted inventors and thinkers alike, providing a platform for experiment, new ideas and innovation. I'd now like to introduce Fleur Watson to the stage to take command of this evening's uh, discussion. I know it's going to be a very stimulating uh, discussion. And um, just a, a word about Fleur if you don't know her. Fleur is, uh, out the way. Fleur is curator at uh, RMIT Design Hub, which is a purpose-designed building dedicated to exhibitions and programs focused on cross-disciplinary design ideas and experimentation. She has co-curated Design Hub exhibitions, including Brooke Andrew, De Anima, Las Vegas Studio, and The Future Is Here, as well as the architecture installations sampling the city for the National Gallery of Victoria's Showcase Festival Melbourne Now. Fleur is a former editor of Monument and currently writes a column on design for the Saturday paper. She is the author of a book entitled Architecture and Beauty and is the editor of the Edmund and Corrigan monograph Cities of Hope, remembered and rehearsed. Most recently, she was co-editor of an issue of the prestigious UK journal Architectural Design entitled Pavilions, Pop-Ups, and Parasols, which is where we are here today. Um, and uh, that was uh, focused on the impact of real and virtual meeting on physical space. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Fleur. Thank you. Well, thank you, Gareth. That was a very comprehensive bio. Thank you very much. And of course, I'm really delighted to be here this evening to introduce two very special guests. Uluwashe Sosanya, or Shay, as he likes to be known. He tells me this afternoon that your grandmother calls you Shay, and we must all call you Shay too. And Paul Stoller from Atelier 10's Australian office. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the new British Inventors Program, which really celebrates uh, pioneering British designers and creates a platform for international debate about the potential of design to shape the future. And I think this is a, a really important program. So it, it's about developing new modes of thinking and is such uh, shaping advances in the many cross-disciplinary fields of design. So we're going to really cement tonight's conversation in that and obviously it's pretty apt that we're here under Amanda Levitt's wonderful pavilion which is also really pushing design and from a very experimental point of view. Um, so I'm going to give you a very short, succinct background 
background on each of our, our speakers this evening. Then they're going to join me on the stage and I'm going to ask them to talk about their work for about five minutes each, five to ten minutes each. Uh, they'll, they'll talk about the body of work and then we're going to have a conversation. But I'd really like that conversation to be... Um, cemented by what you think and what you'd like to hear and what you, what kind of topics you think are important to drive out of tonight's event. So I'm, I'm very happy to lead it, but please just put up your hand or shout out if I can't see you and uh, we'll get you involved. So, Oluwashe Sosanya, or She, um, is a designer and engineer and he's the inventor of the three-dimensional weaving loom. And by exploring and experimenting with manufacturing processes, materials and human interactions, Shay is constantly challenging current design, and that word challenging is very important, human behaviour and production methods. And his most recent work, and we were talking a bit about this when we met this afternoon, is really engaged with empowering people in how they might interact with these new technologies, tools for which he believes could really open new possibilities for designers, engineers and artists alike. So we're going to hear much more from Shay in a minute. And Paul Stoller, our other guest this evening, is the Managing Director of Atelier 10's Australian offices and the global leader of the firm's benchmarking practice. Paul's work and that of Atelier 10 is recognised for high performance and sustainable design within the built environment, including large-scale campuses, cultural and urban projects. And projects in Australia that I'm sure many of you would know include Bangaroo South Precinct in Sydney and the original environmental concepts for Federation Square. So without further delay, I'd like to invite Shay and Paul to come and join me. Thank you. You're welcome. So who'd like to start? I think, shall I pick? Shall I start off with sure. Shay? Would you yeah. like to just talk, you know, five minutes okay. or so about your body of work and then we'll get Paul to do the same and then we'll start the conversation. Okay. Um, so from my accent, you can tell I'm not from UK. I'm from the States. I studied mechanical engineering uh, in Oregon. Uh, post that, I jumped into manufacturing. So I was working abroad primarily for an OEM in Taiwan where we were producing computer components for clients like Lenovo and HP. And through that, I, I, I found this kind of disconnect between the design and the engineering team. I mean, they literally worked on the same floor, but there wasn't much discussion rather than what's the package for this computer and will this design, can I apply this design to that package? And I just saw so much discrepancies between the two. And I was working primarily in the design uh, space and working on how we can kind of better integrate designers and engineers, but there's still like a huge gap to travel. And, and that's where I, I found that maybe going into education and, and understanding from a designer's perspective may help me do that. So I found the, pro the program at the Royal College of Art, which is a joint master's program in London between uh, Imperial College London's mechanical engineering department and Royal College Arts uh, design department. And I started to kind of explore this idea of merging design, engineering, but as well as craft. So we're, we're the, the culmination of craft and engineering can come together to, to really start to shape products in, in, a, in a sustainable way, but also in like a really clever way and like something that's going to push forward uh, an, an innovative product. So I'm trying to think of a really good example of that right now, but my mind's drawing a blank. But um, I mean, we all know when something's made with good quality. 
um, and we all know when something's well designed, um, but what's the background behind that and what did it take to get there? And that's kind of where I like to focus my work. Um, my flagship project out of the school was the 3D Weaver, which was just that kind of mentality, applying this kind of a crafts handmade approach with new technologies that we have available to us today and, and try to come up with a proposition for how we can take um, a, vet, I mean, a relatively familiar um, thing that we wear every single day to kind of another dimension. So I have some samples which I'll be passing around uh, as we speak and, and then I'm open for questions as well. And we'll draw some of those ideas out as Absolutely. we go on with the conversation. Absolutely. So Paul, um, hearing Shay speak, how, how would you like to describe your practice in, in relationship to this conversation tonight? Sure, well I'll just, uh, as Shay did, begin with my background. So I practice as an environmental designer, so I work with architects and engineers and entire building teams and property folks to figure out how to make the built environment more sustainable. What, is the, what does more sustainable mean? And then what is the clever way to design ourselves to, to better outcomes? Um, I should also say I'm really enjoying the irony of two Americans sitting in <laughs> Australia discussing British design with our host, of course. Um, who's Australian, yes, thankfully. Um, but I suppose that's a comment on British design. It's very inclusive and extraordinarily international, which is part of the reason why I went to London to after school to be part of this extraordinary design I couldn't find in the States, and I imagine that's why yeah, you absolutely. went as well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's that's very true, actually, and I have to say that I went to London too and did a master's, so there you go. We're all on the panel in it together. Um, so I'm really interested in some of these ideas about... Uh, Shay and I had the uh, good fortune to meet this afternoon up at Design Hub, and we talked about this idea of design and empowerment. So with new technologies, we're clearly in this uh, realm of um, a new change in the way we're making our objects. This is starting to filter into our built environment in a in larger scale. So what is it about these new technologies that we can uh, push in terms of empowering people to understand how they can be involved in design much more than perhaps they've ever been able to before? And how might that let them understand how important it is in terms of, of our built environment and the objects we have in our life? Um, can I start with maybe you, Shay, and okay. then move on to Paul? Yeah, so let's think. Um, well, I guess my, my innovation kind of parallels the 3D printer. And all of us know what a 3D printer is, but if I can get a quick um, show of hands of how many people can actually generate a 3D file. So well, that's, that's One, yeah, there's a few. Three, I mean, maybe that the crowd's indicative of that, but usually when I ask this kind of question, you only get two or three hands um, in a general audience. And that's a big problem because there's a lot of VC money going towards 3D printing and how it's going to revolutionize our everyday lives. But if it's still a matter of a very select few people understanding how to actually create the digital content, um, that's, that's a massive um, gap. And, and the democratization of that platform really needs to be explored. So in my space, I feel it's really interesting if we can start to provide tools enabled to enable people, whether it be from a loom to a new type of software that allows people to engage, um, to actually start to, to open up that space. And I don't think it's going to infringe on the design practice rather than enhance the design practice and, and give space for designers to actually propose new, new things that maybe then we'll rely on, on us as the consumers to maybe advan enhance those things or 
or actually start to bring those things to life. So um, it's extremely important. I think I think like uh, we we spoke briefly about cooking, and if we go back a few thousand years, maybe there was primarily one or two real top-notch chefs, let's say, and the rest of us were all gathering stuff for them to prepare. But now we're all cooking in our in our homes and we're exploring that wonderful craft. So I think that's kind of where we're going uh, in the space of having this new um, appliance in our house, whether it be the 3D printer or a new type of loom, or even maybe one day we'll be knitting our own things on our automated knitting machine. So uh, it's I think it's extremely important that we all get involved. In, in, in and this is a real project for you, isn't it, Shay? You're working with your colleagues from the RCA yeah. at the moment, developing a program which will allow people in a very simple way mm-hmm. to be able to create their own 3D files. Can you Are you able to talk a, a yeah, little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, a project that I also came out of the Imperial College, or excuse me, Imperial College and the Royal College of Art, that joint master's program, is um, I was working with two other engineers and one designer, and we, we had that same kind of question, you know, how many people have created a, a file? And we actually asked that within the Royal College of Art. And we were so surprised to see that from jewelry design to fashion to even footwear, there's very few people that actually understood these softwares, but these guys could make almost anything. You know, they, they really knew how to use their hands to create something. And, and we said that's a huge problem because they, they, they see the potential as creators and as makers, but they couldn't engage with it at that human level. Um, and so we said, okay, there's something wrong with our softwares. They're designed for machines to spit out uh, a result, you know, whether it be that stool or, or cut the wood to a certain dimension. Let's, let's let them spit out anything that the creator brings to life. And so we're working on software now that's just enabling direct input from your finger on an iPad or a stylus. Um, and every stroke becomes a three-dimensional mesh. So each one of you guys, when I ask that question, hopefully in two, three years time, you all raise your hand and say, yes, I can create a 3D file. <laughs> and, and it's just to, it's not to turn you guys all into designers, but it's just to give you that awareness and to give you the, t- the capability of actually you know, engaging with the technology. Mm. And Paul, obviously new technologies is really just starting to impact on, on the kind of architectural scale. Um, but it's interesting Shay's point that he raises because uh, we had an exhibition uh, touring from London actually at the design from the Design Museum at Design Hub last year, and the press seemed to always want to say, "Well, if anyone can press a button on a 3D printer, what is the role of the designer? Is the designer dead?" And I'm interested in your um, perspective from that from that more architectural scale. I mean, obviously, this is um, there's always that tension between a service <laughs> industry and design as a cultural pursuit. Is it important that people are able to engage and be empowered to show the value of design? Uh, it's an important question and one we struggle with, especially certainly at the scale of the building, but more at the scale of the community, or the precinct or the, the neighbourhood. And um, I just co-taught a studio in... Um, UTS School of Architecture on the sharing economy and collaborative urbanism and what does that make for making cities for the 21st century. And we didn't really get a very clear answer out of what the new technology community creation platforms and sharing platforms and mean for city making. Um, the best we could come up with is it makes it easier to facilitate engagement and response and community, the logistics of community building, but there's not been a we couldn't find a commensurate response from the property industry and government in taking advantage of these new tools to genuinely engage communities meaningfully so that we can harness the wisdom of the crowds, to borrow a line, to make 
better buildings in better places. And we as an industry, all of us as designers, need to design the processes by which we draw people in as much as we need to focus on designing the, the bricks and the blocks and the bits and the bobs. Mm. So I, I think we strug we're struggling to understand what we can do with our new communications platforms as much as we are excited by the new design tools. Mm. So the built environment, in a way, is, is very slow. Yes. If we are to look at the kind of things happening in contemporary culture, which are often very fast, <laughs> particularly in the share economy, if we look at things like Uber or Airbnb. Yes. So what do you think we can learn from those kind of models that can feed back into design? Well, the, uh, the, the mismatch in time scale and in investment scale between buildings and, and developments and other design technologies and other realms of design is huge and very difficult to overcome. Buildings take years, decades in some cases. Um, a product can take months, um, you know, maybe a year if it's a really long effort. So the time and the money difference is huge and means real estate is very conservative by nature. They don't want to sink billions of dollars into things that might not work out or that simply time has passed them by. So I frankly don't have a good answer how to overcome that scale. I think just property is by nature always going to be conservative except for a very few. Um, that said, I think there are ways, you know, as designers we all need to advocate for taking on board newer ideas and newer technologies, but understanding the perspective of our, our colleagues, just uh, what we're up against. But I think I'm missing the gist of your question now that I ramble on. Well, I think maybe if we shift it slightly to the idea of risk. And um, Shay, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the digital loom mm. and perhaps uh, talk about that particular project uh, okay. to our audience today, but also talk about how important risk is mm. in that process and, and how difficult it is to create that space for risk and experimentation. Okay, I'll, I'll hand out the samples now just so they can cycle around. Okay, so where should I start? <laughs> well, I think let's talk a little bit about the samples that you're okay. handing around and the kind of materials and process. Okay, so um, okay, if we go back to um, why the loom and maybe why I wanted to move in that space, that would kind of open up some of the thinking behind some of the decisions I made. Um, well, weaving or textile manipulation for me was one of the earliest crafts that I think, I mean, it's kind of like we, we became cyborgs. I don't know if you've seen some of these backstrap looms that they have in, in West Africa, but you're, you know, you're strapped into this contraption and you're kind of manipulating it. And so from my background in manufacturing, I always found that really interesting as, you know, the human and the machine kind of using it as your, your third hand possibly. And the relationship of the computer and the loom is really closely related, as, as many of you may know. So I, I really want to try to explore that space. And I was already working on this gravity sketch, this kind of um, software. So I figured, you know, why don't just take some time to really explore another area that's really unfamiliar to me. And through that exploration, uh, I was able to start to identify a lot of things haven't really changed in the way that we wear our clothing and the way that our clothing is constructed. Um, I spent three weeks in, or excuse me, three days in Huddersfield and, and Yorkshire. It used to be the textile capital of the world. So the first automated looms were sent straight over and they were cranking out fabric uh, faster than Americans could. And it's dilapidated now. I mean, there's three or four mills that are still up and running and they're producing 
woven material the same way that the Egyptians did. Maybe a bit higher resolution, a bit faster, but not really advancing maybe the structures as much as we could. So that seemed to be a really rich area of exploration for me, is looking at how can we manipulate at a structural level, more so than um, maybe a new type of Gore-Tex or some kind of new surface treatment, which I think we're really excelling in, especially in sportswear. Um, and it really required me not only to spend time at the mills, but because these guys are just focused on production, but I wanted to spend some time with traditional craftspeople. So I spent a lot of time on the fifth floor of our building, which is all textile based. So you have um, traditional Dobby looms and a lot of uh, knitting machines and things like this. And the females, it's all females, sorry, but the, I don't know why it's like this. If you go to the factories, you see all men. If you go to the um, kind of, you know, where the art artisans are, it's all women. It's a really strange phenomenon. Uh, but they're just amazingly talented. and. When I started to propose this new exploration to structures, I, I came across a, a woman, Sophie Zajcek, who's, she really knew how to manipulate her loom in such a way that um, none of the other girls on the floor were doing. I mean, she wasn't just focused on color, she was focused on color, structure, depth, um, some of these things that I was really interested in exploring. And so that kind of really cemented this idea that I had initially with my research of looking at craft and the designer and from the engineering and the, and the manufacturing process. And one thing I noticed is as we were working, we reached the limit of what that, mil what that loom can do. We went to start working on a jacquard loom, if any of you guys are familiar with that. It's, um, it's a, a massive um, uh, what's it, electromagnetic loom, which is able to, you could pretty much print an image if you want to. Um, but every time that you split the warp, so a weave is warp and weft, every time you split the warp, you get thinner and thinner layers of fabric, which then you don't really have that kind of um, that kind of structure that you want to maintain. So we reached the limit of that quite fast. And one thing that I noticed when I was spending time in Huddersfield is they adapted the, their looms to work faster or to do certain things. And so I said, okay, maybe there's a, some space here where I can look at creating a, a new type of machine that would allow us to go in that third dimension. Um, and it was really this, this matter of this, this kind of collaboration and bringing together two very skilled, very highly skilled individuals with more of an open mind kind of creative approach to it. So I wasn't a textile guy by any means before I started, but I just <laughs> kind of knew the right questions to ask and how to maybe bring some of those things together. So what you guys are, are holding is um, two examples. Um, I made a grid pretty much, and you can freely weave around the, the structure, like this kind of um, scaffolding, uh, any kind of pattern you want. And so I wove two strategic patterns. One is exploring oxetics, so if you pull it apart, it kind of has a negative Poisson's ratio. And the other one is pretty much taking inspiration from nature, which is the honeycomb structure. It's one of nature's strongest structures. So um, yeah, feel free to squeeze them and play with them and, and, and see how they respond to the different structures. I think we've got a special guest in the audience, <laughs> wandering around. Um, so Paul, can you kind of speak to a project in which you've had to kind of carve out space for experimentation and risk and, and perhaps in relationship to you, a very established practitioner, and Shay, a kind of uh, very exciting new emerging practitioner. Um, from your experience, how have you carved out that space? Um, I just, I, I was struck as Shay was talking about the importance of the, the outsider in the invention process. Often distance from the traditional ways that things are done gives one critical insights that over-familiarity can, can uh, 
hinder. Mm. Um, and I think in in what we do as environmental designers, it's like good designers everywhere, is maintain a critical distance from what we're working on so we can find those moments of invention. And at Atelier 10, we, on every project, identify one or two areas where we can push very hard to try and invent or at least explore something that, that, that is unique to that project. And occasionally, there's a coincidence of, of project circumstances that allows us to be more inventive. And f an example of that is um, uh, actually Fed Square, just down the road, which is the first project I worked on when joining Atelier 10 in 1998, coincidentally. And in that is this thing called the labyrinth, which is buried under the plaza and over the train tracks in a, a, a void space that would be hard to program with something people would want to do because there's no windows. Um, we put in it uh, a labyrinth, which is like a giant thermal battery. It charges up at night with cool air and is during the day offers us free air conditioning for the, the big atrium and some other spaces. So that was a technology we had pioneered on an earlier project um, out of structural necessity. We had a big slab that needed to be a raft, so it was a deep slab to span over some geologic faults. To lighten that up, the engineers proposed honeycombed structure, essentially, and we thought, oh, if we can move some air through there, that will save us some duct work. And then we started thinking, this is concrete, there's thermal mass, it'll store energy, this becomes like a thermal battery. So there was a collaboration of folks, you know, services engineers looking at a structural issue, thinking, aha, we can make use of that structure for some thermal stuff. Um, so uh, that slight distance, I think, gave us some view. And then uh, we tried it out on this earlier project in the UK. It was, it prototyped it, it, it worked. Um, and I should say about technology, um, it's only really the last 15 or 20 years that we can reliably simulate structures and thermodynamics reliably enough to soothe uh, the fearful investors. So that has been a substantial advance in, in our profession. Uh, but Federation Square was the scaled up version, uh, taking, it all, taking the show on the road. Um, and thanks to our architectural collaborators, I see Don over here, Don Bates from Lab Architects and now Melbourne Uni, um, uh, we were able to deploy this technology. And a lot of invention, I think, is finding good historical precedent and tweaking it, scaling it, finding a new, or a new way to apply it, like you're talking about your research with the looms, taking them to their limits and then tweaking it to the next logical step. The labyrinth ideas came out of Roman catacombs, Roman hypercosts, some natural cave systems that provided cooling, and this is a modern twist using building structure. So um, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity for invention that comes from that, that look at precedent. The risk is this thing is new and different, and how do you ensure it, value it, um, assess risk on it in the conventional sense, um, assess its value, which is, of course, a very subjective issue, and carry people past the natural fear of the new. And, and a lot of what we do as designers is telling stories to get people excited enough about things to deal with the risks, and then we try and quantify those risks in ways that satisfy all the various bean counters. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a tricky one, the managing of risk in inherently conservative conservative industries. Yeah. And especially if you're not, if there's no um, financial gain, let's say, especially like making a tool, like no one wants to invest in a tool, you know, they want to invest in what that tool is going to produce. So that's, that's always the challenge. I, I, that's yes. what I've been facing recently. Or you develop a very interesting tool that makes extraordinary new things, and then what do those new things become? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to turn around and make money to pay for yeah, the tool. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to open it up to the floor in case anyone has a burning question, because we're getting close to time. But if not, I definitely have a point here. So, I have a question. 
burning question. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. So um, I'll just go really quickly back to Huddersfield uh, and Yorkshire area. When you go out there, you meet these guys. There's no one below the age of 45 in there. So they're all old guys. I would say there's no one below the age of 50 in there, to be honest. And I went to the Burberry Mill and the Paul Smith Mill. Um, well, Paul Smith is out of Penine Weavers. They weave a lot, a lot for a lot of different companies. And these guys, I thought, they're really rough. So when you go in there, you don't know how these guys are going to react to the young guy, you know, especially the American guy. <laughs> and, uh, but they're, they're quite, they're really, really welcoming. And, you know, I think they recognize that that, that spiral you talk about is, is going to affect them in the next five, ten years. Um, and what I learned from them was that, um, first, they're really eager to pass on their skills. But secondly, um, they're producing for people outside of the UK. They're producing for J Japanese, for, um, for Thai, for people that are interested in having that UK quality and that UK brand. Um, but they're producing the same way that they've done for the, next, the last 100 years. And what I've seen from going from the two polars, going to the, the very craftspeople that, you know, the women that are still working on the Dobby looms, is that there's, they're capturing these new kind of approaches to, to weaving because they're building off of everything that's come before them. And I think it's just if we can bring those two together, I mean, what I proposed was simply me just going and observing, you know, this, the two, the contrast between the two. And, you know, let's say two people that are very intelligent about the both the, the two ends and the two spectrums, there can be something that can really um, burst through uh, on, on top of on top of new materials. So looking at how we can, um, you know, how can we process cotton better? How can we cross process hemp better? I mean, there's a lot of waste water. There's a lot of a lot of material waste as well in the transport. So, you know, how can we get closer to the, the raw materials with the manufacturing, with the people that are doing the cutting edge stuff, not just people that are, are, are turning it out by the masses? Uh, and sure, sure, absolutely, sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's across every, I think it's across every industry. If you, if you would go to aerospace industry, they'd be open to any kind of craft technology. And let's not, let's not date craft people, you know. Craft was technology if we go back far enough. So let's not remove these two things. I mean, just because you put your hand on it doesn't make it a product that can't be mass produced. You know, if, if anything, it could enhance the product. So it's really about finding the balance between 
the machines are allowing us to do some things that we can never do before, so new geometries and new, new material manipulations, as well as the things that we can do because we have this dexterity and we have this attention and we have you know, our senses. So um, yeah, just, I, I definitely think it's possible. I think it's, you need, we need more practitioners. We need more observ observers, so people that are asking questions, why can't this and this be matched? Um, and we need, yeah, we need more people just experimenting and taking risks, you know, not afraid to, to waste a bit of money to see what happens. And, and, and you know what, they have, there's some really interesting stuff that they actually, like, when they have time to play on the machines, these guys actually do play on the machines a bit, and there was some interesting stuff that was there, and it was like, well, have you guys showed this to anyone? And they're like, yeah, we showed it to, like, Boeing, but they weren't interested. And, you know, it's like, so there's, yeah, there's going to be some real innovations that are actually lost, not just the knowledge base. And, and we've already experienced that in the States. I mean, my move, we moved a lot of manufacturing at Detroit, and look how much knowledge is lost there. Um, Melbourne, you guys used to be a big city of, of, of manufacturing, and I'm sure it's primary, I mean, almost extinct now. I mean, there used to be a big footwear industry, if I remember read correctly. Uh, so where is that gone? And, and, and now if it's made in Melbourne now, let's say tomorrow someone starts a shoe company, sorry to take long, um, are they going to produce the same quality that's going to be indicative to being a, a Melbourne product? I don't know. I mean, I, certainly it's happening in America. I buy American-made goods. And I'm like, actually, I've, you know, I, I bought something made in Taiwan that was a little bit well, better well-crafted you know, than, than this. And now they're becoming the innovators. The Taiwanese, the Chinese, you know, they're asking the questions, they're taking the risks. I know we've got another question here, but I just want to give Paul a chance to respond to uh, the discussion that's been happening from, from your perspective. Paul, do you have some things to comment on? Uh, just a quick response, uh, especially to your last point in that losing the manufacturing capability is, I think, a big uh, economic risk for Australia, let alone America in that um, as the rest of the world sort of economies start to level out in terms of cost of production, as well as our greater appreciation for the environmental and social challenges of procuring materials from other lands catches up with us, um, we can, d as designers, which is what I think uh, uh, we do very well in Australia, um, as designers, the stuff that we design can start to be built again here at, at good value. In fact, in the, the property industry and building, we often now see that we'll design here, parts will be manufactured overseas, but things come back to be finally assembled here because of the high quality of, of construction. Mm -hmm. Or increasingly, that's as economically viable as doing it overseas. And it's certainly not often the case, but it's, it's starting to creep in. So if we lose the manufacturing component, we lose the ability to recapture that value and also contribute in even higher quality. So we can't, we can't manage the full cycle, we can't deliver the full goods. Mm -hmm. And I just will note, lastly, that in America, there is now a shortage of garment workers mm. for this reason, generally. Uh, China's now become quite a bit more expensive, and the high-quality garment working skills are dying out, literally. The people are dying, and they, they don't exist in America anymore. So it's hampering the industry. Mm. Um, over to your question. So I'm an Irish person. <laughs> <laughs> in Melbourne, so I'm, uh, but then I, I like to ask Paul a question. Uh, you know, essentially, construction is obviously been around for so much. Construction's been around since the pyramids and before. Um, and um, there's an awful lot of you know, traditional skills that, that, that come there. Now, it's interesting, having spent some time in Melbourne, uh, a lot of time in Melbourne, and seen the sort of 
the traditional way in which we build our houses. Um, it's not wonderful. In, in fact, you know, we could we can do so much better and, and so much smarter, um, and and get buildings that are better insulated, uh, that are use thermal performance better, that are better designed, and so on. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the way in which we can use really powerful design skills, software, knowledge, and traditional materials, and how they can kind of how we can you combine the two of them. But then the bigger challenge is how do you actually do all the cool stuff, but yet we still build, you know, pretty crap buildings at the moment. Some of the stuff, particularly say some of the, well, at a domestic scale, and also, uh, you know, even some of the apartment buildings and so on, things that we're putting up at the moment. A lot of stuff that's going up there, we're not going to go and be proud of in years to come. I wonder no. if you could talk about some of those things. Well, that's a big question, Jeff. Um, uh, I'll answer a little bit of it. Um, I think that one of the things we'll see affect the construction industry globally, let alone here, is more and more essentially factory assembly of, uh, of our built environment, prefabrication, one way or the other. We get higher quality, lower cost, and in many ways more inventiveness because it's easier in a factory setting to establish a direct link between our digitally enabled imaginations and production. And we can mass customize and do all those cool things with you know computers talking to computers talking to milling machines and fabricators and 3d printers and the rest um, and then those fewer much 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 bigger components get trucked to sites and installed and there will always be a role for manual labor in this to put the stuff together on the site and some what we conventional trades will still be involved because certain things don't ship very well but i think that's the big picture for how we build our houses and how we build our buildings. It's certainly happening with bigger buildings. We don't have guys now weld up pipes one by one up a riser shaft. We build the whole riser shaft with the pipes three stories, set it on the next one and up we go. So I think that is has the potential to raise the quality and raise the design inventiveness because we're less hampered by how hard it is to do something on site. Um, I hope the effect of that is it enables more creativity and, and more interesting design and doesn't force us to default even more to catalogs of stuff. That would be a, an unfortunate outcome. Um, there is, of course, a big social question about as we cut more and more labor out of the building end, what do all those people do? And to your point, as the world becomes ever more digitally driven through design and fabrication, how do we ensure that broadly our people are educated enough to participate in that? And with school funding, which is pretty stable in Australia, but certainly where I come from, um, it's pretty dire. Uh, I'm concerned that we are not adequately preparing um, and enabling equal access to a more digital, um, higher quality built environment future. And I wonder just to expand on that a little bit or even to take it a step back. If we are talking about inventiveness and experimentation and um, looking at how design can impact on our daily lives, how do we shift uh, the emphasis too on the expertise of the designer from the built object, whether that be an object or a building, and right at the beginning of the process, get it into policy making, get it into thinking around social housing. How can this kind of experimentation and, and indeed new technologies, how can they impact at that level? So maybe can I get you to start in responding to that? and, and on to Sure. Uh, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm a consultant. I'm paid to talk and think, uh, think and talk. Um, but 
the message that I think that has come from, let's say, a more general reawakening of interest in design over the last decade is that the time and the cost invested in the design process of buildings and of iPhones and, and the stuff around us um, has real value. It makes better things that we care more about that make people happier. So I'm hopeful that that recognition continues and you know, at least in my industry, um, designers are, are, that there's more investment in, in the human part of this, the clever invention part. Um, that said, there's still an awful lot of projects out there that are essentially uh, lowest cost design rules, or let's just take the last project, change the title block, change the site plan, and kind of hope it all fits and, and crack on with it. And that's not doing anybody any good, um, uh, other than the folks making money on the building. So I, that's a larger cultural shift. But I think the power of design and recognizing the value in design and, and value holistically uh, is is the thing that we all need to keep pressing on. That there is real, that everybody comes out ahead when there is more thoughtful design done on our projects. And Shay, it's obviously very speculative. But yeah. if you were to take your invention, yeah. the digital loom, how how you know what could you give us a sample of what it might be able to achieve? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think it, you, once you make a tool, it's the people that use the tool that are going to tell you what it's going to bring to life. And that's the exciting part for me. It's, I mean, I love making things, of course, but uh, if I think we can take a big chapter out of this kind of open source, um, the digital kind of community, especially the guys coming out of the Bay Area, where you know they make their, they, it's open platform. People build on top of their platform, and that's what we need to start bringing to the physical space and maybe even the housing space. Uh, certainly, if you go and take a trip to Shenzhen, China, you'll see or even Hong Kong for that matter, you see people build on top of buildings. So it's, you know, the people are gonna determine, you know, what the tool is or what policy starts to change. I mean, we, we see Uber is now changing policy in a lot of places and same with Airbnb. So for me, it's let's give the tools and let's let the people really start to, to build on top of these tools. And so, yeah, we need more tool makers. That's, I think that's the, that would be my, my change to policy is make tools. It's like a call to arms. Um, is there another question from the audience? Yeah. Oh, Paul's got it. I, I'm not sure this is the right analogue, but do you think the 3D weaving machine is where the 3D printer was five, ten years ago? Uh, well, 3D printer has been around, what, yeah. I guess it just started getting recognised in recent years, and I, I don't know, I, I would like to think that if, if I propose that the loom could be used by everyone, well, first let's say it's going to be very segmented. I think people that understand weaving are going to start to pick up on this, and certainly the the women that I've been working with on the craft side are really excited about this. So you'll we'll see definitely that these girls and hopefully some guys will get involved in, in the craft <laughs> side. will pick up will pick up in this space and they'll start to build on top of what I've done, and that's really exciting to me. Uh, and then you know if it gets to the point where 3D printing is now, where you're talking about having a, a, a loom in your house and you're going to weave your own you know maybe your own mattress because the material I'm making you can weave blocks. Um, then yeah, maybe that's can can p kind of parallel the 3D printer, um, but I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm still I'm still questioning where it's going to go. But I definitely see the direct path is definitely into the weavers right now who are really interested in kind of taking that third dimensional step. Great. I think we've got another question here from Don Tom Bates. Turning this into a kind of oppositional, you, you started off talking about your story in terms of coming to London 
and uh, with the RCA and the Imperial College of sort of breaking down the silos and that. And then we kind of switched to technology mm. and about the fascination with the technology and what it can do. But I'm curious, without putting a hierarchy, could you talk a bit more about the necessity for being able to shift between uh, roles or between uh, disciplines mm. and what that has in order to enable the technology to do something or enable to even imagine the technology? Okay, yeah. Uh, I'll just go back on what Paul was saying. Um, sometimes if you're completely removed from a, a certain sector, I mean, one of the things that why I went into weaving was I had no clue. Like, I, I couldn't even tell you how my shirt was made, right? So I, I felt, first I felt ignorant, but then I thought, okay, ignorant always is a kind of a bad word, or we perceive it as a bad word, but perhaps I could flip it into a good situation. Because I'm ignorant enough, I can ask the stupid questions without feeling stupid. I don't know what the stupid questions are. So that allows me, in that sense, to go, and if it wasn't for these friendly guys in Huddersfield to be able to just say, hey, I'm gonna tell you about this, I'm gonna tell you about that, um, I was able to ask questions that I probably wouldn't have asked in my previous work had I been an outsider. Um, and that's, I think that's the real power, is a bit of courage in terms of, can you go to this new space, can you ask a few questions, and can you build off those questions, so don't ask the same question too many times. So I was asking a question about splitting warps, and then I built on top of that, I understood a bit more about the warp built on top of that. And so I, I would imagine, and I've been trying to actually apply this to other areas, other sectors. Um, one area I'm really interested in is glass, and how we produce um, glass at, at mass scale, and how we recycle glass. So I, I'm very ignorant, and I know that if with that same set of principles of like being able to travel between you know, let's say the Royal College of Art and Imperial College and ask those kind of questions that are based out of ignorance, but build on top of those, um, I'm, I'm more than confident I can come up with some kind of pro proposal for change or some kind, of, um, some kind of project that may lead to something else. So I don't know if that's quite answering the question, but um, I, th I think ignorance is the power that I have, <laughs> that I, have I guess, in, in that space. Yeah. Paul, would you like to respond to John's question in terms of... Briefly, and I'll just say I, I'm touched by your humility and I'm reminded of what a calculus professor told me in day one of a class years ago. He said, know with what you be, begin with what you know. That's usually very little, so you know where to start. <laughs> um, and I guess that's sort of similarly in my profession, um, at least where I came into it, as an architect stepping into the world of engineering in many ways, or a territory often occupied by engineers, I had the useful experience of uh, naivete and I guess the, the, the luxury to ask questions that um, occasionally unlock some interesting doors, uh, conceptually or intellectually, because I'm not of that, of that discipline. But um, more directly answering Don's point, I think that interdis interdisciplinary design always leads to more interesting outcomes, and I think more satisfactory outcomes, and I think that's back to our large theme, one of the things that British design has traditionally done very well is work in an interdisciplinary fashion, um, at least compared to the American design world that I kind of grew up in, where there's a much stronger, let's say, um, uh, uh, assembly line-like process. You know, you do this bit, you do that bit, you do that bit, and we only connect the dots. You know, in these few moments, British design has always struck me as more inter more iterative, more collaborative, and more driven by a first principles view of how can we make the best thing, the, the mm. most efficient thing. American design has always seemed to broadly stereotype 
um, more driven by how can we make the thing most economically, which yeah. doesn't yeah. optimize many things except manufacturing costs. Australian design somehow seems to me, and I'm not sure about this, but sort of drawn to both poles and not, not necessarily at one or the other place. There's some beautifully, fully optimized, high quality design here and some very, very, you know, cost driven design. Yeah. If I can just go back to the question, because you sparked something from um, what I was thinking is uh, during the war, uh, we shifted a lot of manufacturing um, of, you know, maybe household goods now into weaponry, and that challenged the manufacturers because they had to produce something for a certain cost, uh, at a certain rate, at a certain volume. So that's kind of interesting because you, you automatically, um, you change your thinking straight away. You have to because of a necessity. And on the back of that, you come out as a company that can produce a variety of different things rather than producing like door handles over and over again. And we saw that in Japan during the, during the tsunami, right? So a lot of areas were affected, and one of Japan's biggest, um, biggest exports is their automotive industry. Now, they couldn't suffer Toyota losing that, that much money uh, as a result of the tsunami. So Japan did the exact same thing that the British did during the war. They went out and reached out to companies that were making... Uh, typical household goods or even some companies that were making computer components and they shifted all efforts towards Toyota to keep make sure that Toyota kept their their stock price at that certain level so that's a really interesting um, example of where that can be used in a very practical sense more you know, what I was doing is more explorative but in a very practical sense to maintain uh, yeah a status quo I do want to kind of return maybe to that uh, picks up on Don's question, which is about this idea of the kind of fetishization of the technology mm. and the machine. And certainly we're seeing a lot of that in the press, you know, the robotics and 3D printers. I mean, is there actually a danger that we lose sight of the fact that the technology is really only allowing us to perhaps uh, experiment more quickly with, to try things that we've always imagined, that have been in our heads forever. Um, you know, Luigi Colani, we could think of, Archigram, I mean, these are ideas out of the imagination. So is there a danger that when we let the technologies get too much of a fetish in the public realm, that we lose the investment in the thinking and it goes towards the technology? <laughs> Who's going to start? I'll, I'll take that first. Um, <laughs> we'll come to you, sure. A little bit of fetishization, I think, is good. It builds kind of excitement around an idea and gives it a chance to see its logical or illogical extremes, and we learn from that. Too much fetishization, though, leads us to, you know, weird genres of bizarre stuff. Um, so I, I don't want to poo-poo the, the power of fetishization to lead to good things, um, but I do think, especially around technology, we are always a very, we seem to be a very technology-driven culture. Inevitably, when I meet with folks, they always want to know, what's the next great thing in sustainability? My answer is usually, how about doing the last great thing you set out to do properly? <laughs> See how that goes, because you haven't really seen through what you set out to do three years ago. Um, so the downside, in my view, is that is the never is not doing properly what should be done. Um, that's a very general answer, but it's my, my quick response. Yeah, um, I don't know if anyone has been to the Royal College of Art here, but um, you've seen our facilities, and they're they're not technologically advanced. And <laughs> if you want to gain access to the facilities at Imperial College, you have to go through a whole lot of gatekeepers. So, I think what that kind of 
desperation because we don't have I couldn't go and, and talk to a programmer and get something knocked up or I couldn't go and get something 3D printed directly uh, it forces me to kind of fall back on what I know and like what I know is building on top of my ideas and trying to bring that to a more uh, solidified state and I, I really appreciate that I had this kind of um, lack of resources because it did remove this kind of fetishization of, around the technology. I was like, I could just print this, I'll just design and print it. It was more of thinking through, can I do this by hand first? Is it more uh, effective to do it by hand? Um, what, would what would technology build on top of this if I was to use a, a technological output? Um, and then as I guess as we are seeing the influx of things coming into our homes, um, we'll go back to the 3D printer, um, it's, I think people are still going to ask the question, like, what is this going to do for me? And why do I want to print this thing rather than just go buy it? So we have a fetish now, but at some point it starts to die down a little bit. And we start to look at where the kind of benefit for us as the consumer is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good to generate that hype, to generate some, some, some kind of gravity towards it. But too much can lead to a, yeah, it can lead to kind of, un, a kind of under, under, Whelming, and we might just take these things for granted. I think we have a question over here from, from Sean Kelly. You've talked about risk, tools, and technology. Um, I just want to make a point, but it's obviously to the, to the guys there. See that building over there? That costs about as much as the world's most expensive computer costs. We have dozens of those buildings here, but only the Chinese have one of those computers. That computer is currently used to figure out how to safely detonate nuclear bombs or to construct bombs. The other nine out of the top ten computers are also similarly inclined towards designing weapons of mass destruction, yet they only cost the price of that building there. Who then is holding us back from making decisions about why we don't have 10 of those computers and why we don't deploy them to, as, as you're saying, open them up, let a thousand people come there and run their software on it and see what happens. See what happens with a digital jacquard, so-and-so, so-and-so. So that's a, con that's a question that concerns me. <laughs> we have people who are making or not making the decision to do what I think is very obvious and that is it's not about technology not a fashion it's going to overwhelm everything and the question is do we put a hand up and say how do we master it or do we run away from it and say I'm too scared of change so I'd like to throw that to the audience or how do we participate yeah well maybe we'll start with the panel and then go to the audience that's a big question yeah, massive Paul, do you want to try and grapple with that one? Oh, my, my grappling is um, almost as depressing. I was, my first thought is probably three or four of the world's fastest computers are now also regularly put to use running global climate models to predict just how bad the climate change is going to be, which produces very clear evidence things are going not in the direction we want them to, and despite the clear, reasonably clear evidence, very clear evidence, um, our politicians don't want to grapple with those results. So that's not answering your question, just keeping a bit more gloom on, uh, on things. Um, but I will say uh, that I think there are, mobile technology is helping remind us that it is 
not difficult to make portals into very powerful computational systems and to make them accessible to you and me and others when we're on the bus or tram or sitting here and not, not interested. So clever, I guess in this case, software designers or, or, or software access folks can give everyday folks access to very powerful tools. It's just a question of what do we want to give people access to and have them come out of and That, I don't know. So in that way, there's a, a, a kind of oblique analogy, at least, with the share economy. Yeah. Mm. So it feeds into some of those themes we've been talking about tonight, which is the share economy, sharing resources, collaboration in this case at a very meta scale. I think we've, we're really almost out of time and then I think we're going to have a drink this evening. <laughs> so um, is there a last question for the audience? Or sh over here? Uh, I just wanted to ask if the students at the Royal College of Art are actually using your Invention? Uh, if they're putting it into... Uh, no, at the moment it's just uh, Sophie, the woman that I was working on to develop. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at how to open it up, make it open source. It's a bit of a messy situation right now. So uh, what I like to call the loom is like a concept vehicle. So if you're familiar with the automotive industry, and I've used this example several times during the time I've been here, um, they just put out a vehicle that is going to set the tone for the next maybe four to five years of that company's design language. And it, it's capturing, it's so real that it almost captures like what the, the real car would look like on the road. And that's kind of where I find my innovation is like sitting in that space. So I've kind of put something out there that is real enough that it can capture what is gonna be the next, maybe the next new thing in, in weaving technology. And now it's really about making the connections with um, the industry that's gonna be able to, to offer this kind of this kind of solution. I mean, I can open up the the IP to everything so that they can create their own looms and start weaving on this, but it would be much more effective if I can link with industry partners and like start to make platforms and make reasonable software that allows allows them to plug in, um, which is something I'm really, really interested in. I've actually been talking with the school here and uh, I was talking with a few schools like uh, Manchester and, uh, and, uh, and Leicestershire which are historically great textile schools about doing just this. So it's on the way, but it's, it takes a lot longer than I initially thought. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big undertaking. I would make a plug for letting the architecture students have a crack at the machine as well, yeah. often being unencumbered by closeness to reality. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what they'll invent? Yeah. Yes. yeah, exactly. And in fact, you had a, a great conversation with some architects today looking yeah. at this technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, they, and they're doing some fantastic work like with robotics in the same space, like with the same... Mind, mindset, so maybe just connecting more of these communities together. Mm. So I think that's a, a really nice note to end on tonight about collaboration and sharing knowledge and, and a more uh, sharing spirit of experimentation and risk. Um, so we really look forward to uh, seeing your invention start yeah. to develop, your concept uh, take speculative form into mm. reality. And Paul, thank you very much for your generous time today. I'd like you to thank both our speakers. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank the British Council, Gareth and Helen, 
And I'd also like to thank the M Pavilion, Robert and Naomi, and the whole team at the M Pavilion um, for tonight's event. It's been a really fantastic discussion. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's been great.